0: Hello and welcome to an OU Law School podcast. I'm Mariana Ajewski and on this episode I will be talking with Lukas Lyszynski, who is an Associate Professor at UNSW Sydney. He recently gave an interesting talk at the Law School and I wanted to share it with you. We'll be talking about the bright sides, but also the many dark sides of International Cultural Heritage Protection. On that note, the Law School is celebrating the 50 years of the Open University, starting in July. We have some interesting stuff lined up, so watch this space from July. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So we're going to start with Lucas introducing himself.
1: Hi, I'm Lucas Lishinsky. Um I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of New South Wales, or UNSW Sydney. And um, I'm originally
0: from Brazil. Um, I'll put in some um, links in the show notes of where you can find Lucas's profile. So Lucas, um, what do you research and what got you interested in it? I am an
1: international lawyer. Uh, that's my research and uh, I focus specifically on international human rights law and also international cultural heritage law, which was the topic of the talk uh, yesterday and also the the book that just came out, which was a basis for the talk. Um, so I focus on international cultural heritage law for a lot of my work and my interest in that. Where does it come from? Uh, I suppose when I was an undergrad, I was part of a research group. And um, one of the things we did, uh, which was an extracurricular thing, right? So one of the things we did was present a paper at a uh, student conference once a year. Uh, And one of the years, because I thought at the time I wanted to be an intellectual property lawyer, but I was also really interested in minority rights. I try and find a topic that brought together indigenous peoples and intellectual property um, and that's how I stumbled upon the idea of cultural heritage as a regulatory object or subject. And, um, yeah, and that kind of took off from that.
0: So can you give us, can you paint us a picture? So what is cultural heritage? How is it regulated internationally? Um, what? So what is all that about? Ooh. Uh, cultural heritage is a lot of things.
1: Um for the most part, it's things that tell a story about identity, right? That's the broader definition. Uh, in terms of the law, is anything from cultural sites, monuments, uh, natural landscapes, uh, or even cultural landscapes, uh, shipwrecks, um, traditional practices like traditional storytelling, songs, uh, music. Um, Even culinary practices can be considered cultural heritage Um, and also things like archives, museum artifacts, uh, paintings, uh, musical instruments, even furniture if it is uh, old enough. Um, So it's a fairly broad domain Um, and and the way it's regulated uh, internationally, it's mostly through the work of UNESCO, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Um, And they have five key treaties in this area um, ranging from 1954 to 2003, uh, which kind of form the basis of uh, international law in this area and also the basis of the book.
0: Okay, so how does international law regulate cultural heritage?
1: So international law steps in by telling states that they can choose certain cultural heritage that they want to display to the world And they protect that by either creating norms that prohibit the destruction in wartime, which is where UNESCO started in 1954, to things like lists uh, as a means of giving visibility and raising awareness to cultural heritage. The most famous of that is the World Heritage List, of course, which has well over a thousand sites around the world. to, to things like promoting international cooperation and technical exchange so we can um, send archaeologists and send uh, architects to help uh, protect and restore uh, cultural heritage.
0: So a lot of your work deals with, um, with the bright side, i.e. How, how do we protect cultural heritage? But a lot of your work, uh, your research goes into the unintended consequences of this protection. So can you tell us a bit about those?
1: Absolutely. So, the, the, the basic idea, I, I kind of work with the, the idea of lights and shadows, right? So, for every shining um, idea be, that UNESCO puts out there, and it helps protect cultural heritage internationally, um, each one of those um, edifices, as it were, casts a shadow, right? Um, and in looking at those shadows, we kind of see the unintended consequences of cultural heritage regimes, um, one of which has to do with the exclusion of the communities that live in, with, or around heritage, um, in the sense that international law doesn't let them have much of a say as to what their heritage actually means and how it should be protected and uh, and whether it could ever be changed or transformed, and so on and so forth. Um, and then there are a number of other consequences in the sense of selecting what... Um, Kind of heritage actually gets supported internationally, right? Uh, and usually, or often, it can happen at the expense of minority groups. Um, uh, so, for instance, a minority group that is challenging the nation state will isn't likely to get their heritage protected on an international list because only the state gets to determine what is put on the list to begin with, right? What or what is considered for inclusion on the list? So there are a number of. Uh, consequences, and um, a- a- and that's what a lot of my
0: work has focused on. So, can you give us some concrete examples, uh, something that makes us visualize the whole thing?
1: Absolutely. So, one example I, uh, I like to talk about, actually, I'm going to choose two examples, one that has to do with the World Heritage List, and another one that has to do with the Intangible Cultural Heritage List, which is a regime that protects what we popularly known it, know as folklore. So, the idea of living heritage. So, on the World Heritage List, a very good example is that of the Swiss Alps, uh, which were added to the World Heritage List. Um, And then, one of the consequences of that is that the Swiss government thought that in order to properly implement and keep that landscape pristine, they had to exclude uh, farmers who let their animals graze um, in the area. which is not an uncommon measure, it has been done uh, in similar ways by a lot of other countries, right? Um, But then, specifically in the the case of the Swiss Alps, what that meant is that, all of a sudden, the grass is growing wild, and the landscape that was supposed to be protected by kicking the animals out is actually now deteriorating, right? So they have to helicopter lawnmowers onto the Alps, because its it patches a very difficult access uh, to trim back the, um, the grass and, and keep it looking the way it should and keeping the, the, keeping the landscape um, integrity, right? Um, so that's one example of how not letting communities or excluding communities from the conversation can have a very negative impact. Another example um, which is the one on intangible cultural heritage, has to do with uh, Buddhist chanting in Ladakh, uh, which is this um, Himalayan part of India. It's a part... Uh, Ladakh is a part of uh, broadly defined Kashmir, essentially, in India, and it kind of makes the, this triple border between uh, China, India, and Pakistan. So it's a very contested territory, um, and, and there's a population there called the Ladakh, um, which is essentially a primarily Buddhist uh, population, and the Indian government listed their chanting, and uh, the educational system that happens through the gompas, which are Buddhist temples, um, as intangible cultural heritage. In doing that, um, they, are, they consulted with the Ladakhi people, but they only consulted with uh, Buddhists living in Ladakh and uh, largely excluded um, Muslims living in Ladakh, right? So in a way, they they, they used the listing of that heritage to sort of claim the area, at least symbolically, as Buddhist and therefore non-Muslim and therefore um, Pakistan should not try to claim it as uh, as part of the Kashmiri contestation. Um, and, anyway, so there, there there's that element of it, and another element is that, in doing so, uh, the Indian government also got to control, or got to make a claim to control, what gets taught in those schools in the Gompas. Because right? now a lot of the funding for that educational system gets translated into culture, and it reverts back to the central government to make the decisions on funding. Um, and they get to have a say on curriculum design that essentially can uh, ride out of existence the whole history of uh Ladakh secession and the independence movements, because those boundaries were very contested when India and Pakistan became independent um, and uh, gained their current territorial dimensions, and it still is a contested border, right? Um, so, which is a way in which, the, essentially, the UNESCO process for listing that heritage has allowed for the manipulation of an entire minority identity um, and, and um, has stacked the deck, as it were, um, against a secessionist movement.
0: So, we have on one side governments who are sort of opting culture, co-opting culture, and sort of erasing minorities. But in your talk uh, yesterday, you also mentioned that some NGOs also have a prominent part within these conventions, which is a welcome matter because this will all be left for states. But it also excludes um, communities in another way, even though these are NGOs because they are NGOs of experts. So can you tell us more about that? Yes. So the one of the big
1: problems with international heritage law, and that's something that has been discussed quite a bit um, In heritage study circles but the law has not uh, really caught on to that yet or it has started to but not to the same extent is the idea of expert rule right so the international heritage law much like other areas of international law and governance is dominated by experts and experts are individually incredibly well-meaning hard-working people But the way the system is set up to accommodate and make room for expert rule leaves a lot of room for abuse. Because all of a sudden the expert becomes the sole filter between the community or the layperson, let's say, and the state and international regime. Um, Which makes things very manageable, right? Or fairly manageable. Um, In the sense that you have a voice that actually knows what they're talking about, they know how to navigate the system... Uh, but at the same time, that there's a lot of room that uh, for abuse in that these experts can end up privileging heritage that, um, well, safeguards their own existence, right? And, and they will privilege regimes that uh, protect experts before they protect communities. And a, a good example of that is the World Heritage System, right? Uh, so to get on the World Heritage List, which is very famous, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, has over a thousand sites from over 165 countries around the world um, to get onto that first you need the state to nominate that place um, so let's say with um, the london tower right so to get the london tower on the world heritage list which has already happened first the uk government had to say we w- we wish to put the london tower up for consideration um, um for inclusion on the world heritage list once that is done and the British government has prepa- had prepared its, um, its nomination file, then um, expert NGOs have to intervene. The London Tower is included as a cultural site, so the NGO that, c- that comes in is International Council of Museum and Sites, e-commerce. Um, and because they participated in the drafting of the World Heritage Convention back in the, in the 60s and 70s, um, they made sure that in the convention itself says that nothing can be added to the World Heritage List without their blessing. So then the UK government has to ask ICOMOS to come and assess the site through their expert eyes and determine whether the site, in fact, has outstanding universal value. Uh, which is to say that between the state and experts, they, they are the gatekeepers for heritage at the international level, right? And, and that can be great in a sense of it, from a managerial perspective, but there is at the same time a lot of room for abuse uh, because those expert NGOs, they're more likely to um, give in to the states on uh, whose contracts they actually depend for their existence than to the communities they may wish to challenge the state right so th- their function of being the channel between the community and the international uh, is lost at least if um, what the community wants goes against the state
0: so in my mind i have, I have this caricature uh, let's say uh, a community wants to protect its songs Um, And to do that, they have to first audition in front of the government, so they would nominate them, and then they would have to audition in front of this expert committee to say that, yes, your songs are valuable, and they're universal, and they're worth protecting. It's a caricature, but it seems like what's happening. In
1: a way, so to get... For Intangible Heritage, it's a little bit different, because the state, when they produce a nomination file, they, they need to have secured the free, prior, and informed consent of the community, which is fantastic, and in many ways a revolutionary step within UNESCO, but then once you look at the detail of it, uh, the, it is for the state to determine what is sufficient free, prior, and informed consent, and who constitutes the community of whom this consent is sought. Uh, so back to the Ladakhi Buddhist chanting example, for instance, the Indian government consulted a number of gompas, so a number of uh, temples and schools, uh, but they only really consulted those in the Buddhist part of Ladakh, and consulted no one on the Islamic side, or the, on the predominantly Islamic side of Ladakh. So any uh, gompa that could say something about the integration and intermarriages and the, the close relationship between the Buddhist and uh, the Islamic communities. Um, all of a sudden didn't count as part of the, the quote-unquote real uh, practicing community of Ladakhi Buddhist chanting.
0: All right, so what's the way forward?
1: The way forward, in my opinion, is to bring the community, give them a full seat at the table. Right now there are attempts at giving communities more of a say, So, back to the expert NGOs on the World Heritage System, for instance. um, IUCN, which is International Union uh, for the Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources, they have gone out of their way to actually include communities in their um, expert assessment process, even though they didn't have to, right? And the World Heritage uh, Committee themselves have added some language, on an urging states to consider uh, including communities in these processes. But there's nothing actually requiring them. And even then, uh, all the involvement of communities happens in the background, right? It happens prior to the meeting that is actually going to make the decision, that is actually going to set the narrative of what that heritage is for and what its value is. Um, Whereas I think that while those things are great, um, they're not enough. We need to give communities a full seat at the international table when their heritage is being discussed. Um, whether that means uh, that they actually have uh, veto power, or they can actually shape the narrative in more uh, in ways that better agree with what they want out of their heritage. Because uh, <clears throat> something that also often happens is that um, we make uh, expert NGOs or evaluators or UNESCO. Uh, even makes all these, or these states, they make all these promises to communities as to how much uh, better off they're going to be after the heritage is added to the list, and those promises seldom uh, materialize. So they get to resent all of a sudden the listing process and the burdens that um, UNESCO status puts on them, uh, and they don't get any of the benefits, so they actually stop protecting the heritage that they should care for to begin with. Uh, so we, we got to be mindful of that, and, and, and giving them a full seat at the table um, makes things a lot easier to manage from that perspective. Of course, there's a big obstacle, which is actually getting states to agree to give communities a full seat at the table. Um, but uh, I argue in the book that uh, we would all be better off if, uh, if that were to happen.
0: All right. Uh, the way we usually end this podcast is by giving some... Suggestions for young researchers um, from our experience. So, I know that you supervise PhD students. So, would, what are the three things that you would, from your experience, um, suggest for new researchers? For instance, keep going, um, yes, it takes some time, etc., uh, etc.? Cetera, et cetera. Um, three things.
1: Number one, um, the criticism you get is not about you, it's about your writing. Uh, so, do, we just say, don't wrap your sense of self-worth and your self-esteem around this one chapter. Um, or whatever it is you're submitting, right? Uh, that's just one thing you've done, it's not your entire career. And, uh, and that means that when people criticize you, it's not about you as a person, it's about the text. So, just dust yourself off and work on the text. Uh, number two, um, a PhD is never completed. A PhD is submitted. Uh, you are never going to finish your PhD project. There's always more to be done. But you have to submit it. So don't uh, think that you have to do everything that is humanely possible and then some more before you let anyone see your text. You gotta get it done. You gotta get it out there. Um, and three, and I suppose it's a, just a, a slightly different way of framing number two, um, your PhD thesis is only the first draft of your first book. Uh, it's not supposed to be perfect, it never will be perfect. Um, but also, you will never start your academic career unless you finish and submit that first draft of your first book. So just
0: get it done. Yeah. Don't be afraid of the red pen. Uh, criticism is the nature of the scientific process. Yeah, just keep on going. Um, contact your friends. Stay in touch. Uh, get get feedback. Don't be afraid of feedback. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much, Lucas, for this for this talk. Um, and stay tuned for the next episode. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and I hope you will come back for the next one. As ever, you can find out more about us on the Law School's website, which is in the show notes below. Don't forget about our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday starting in July. The music in the background is called Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.